Obamacare is finished. It's dead. It's gone. There is no such thing as Obamacare anymore. That's a lie by the President of the United States. He's lying. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., in Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ, on the Central Coast 106.7 Queso in Cottage Grove, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman. Your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today for another thrilling, action-packed adventure that we call The Bradcast. Coming up, weeks after a gunman opened fire on a crowd in Las Vegas from his 32nd floor hotel room, killing... Uh, Some 58 people injuring more than 500 in less than 10 minutes. Lawmakers in Washington, D.C., surprise, have failed to move any legislation forward. They have talked about some legislation that might move through Congress. I remain skeptical to ban one of the devices that made the massacre in Vegas so deadly and allowed the gunmen to shoot more than 500 concert goers with the speed of a fully automatic machine gun. But as the uh, seemingly endless fight over gun safety legislation continues to be blocked by and large, actual efforts on the ground that are working to curb gun violence go largely ignored by Republicans and many Democrats alike. We'll speak shortly with one of the community leaders on the ground out here in L.A., Uh, with a program that has helped to curb gun violence in major cities across the state uh, and the country, even as lawmakers remain crippled by the arms industry uh, and the terrorist-enabling National Rifle Association, which spends millions of dollars to assure that the overwhelming will of we the people is completely ignored by lawmakers at both the state and federal levels. Never ignoring the uh, will of we the people is, of course, Desi Doyen. Hi, Des. <laughs> Hello. Uh, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report will uh, will have one of those coming up. And, and frankly, an amazing amount of news that you managed to jam into today's six minutes of, uh, what do we say, independent green news, politics. Yeah, it's, it's and, like an uh, hour-long show to, uh, smushed into a smushed one, into six-minute six bag. Right. <laughs> 
Um, all right, so you're not going to want to miss that coming up as well. Lots there. But first, you know, I want to get back to some to some news that I had to hit very quickly at the end of yesterday's broadcast because it may be Donald Trump has said, a, said and done a lot of uh, s- stupid, wrong, egregious, offensive, take your pick, uh, things. Uh, but this one it may have been his worst in truth. Many in the corporate media were sort of quickly distracted on Monday by more obnoxious comments that Trump gave at a White House press conference uh, shortly after these comments. But for a variety of reasons, the comments that he made to the media just before a cabinet meeting on Monday in the White House really need to be called out. Here's what he said. Here's how he dangerously lied to the American people and the hundreds of millions who have health care insurance in this country uh, before this cabinet meeting at the White House. Obamacare is finished. It's dead. It's gone. It's no longer. You shouldn't even mention it's gone. There is no such thing as Obamacare anymore. It is a and I said this years ago. It's a concept that couldn't have worked. In its best days, it couldn't have worked. Well, actually, it did work. Uh, It's still working. And the president is wildly, uh, obnoxiously, uh, I, I would I would argue unlawfully wrong, if I can use that word, wildly irresponsible, dangerously so. His comments are inaccurate. They are cruel. Uh, But but more than that, for someone whose oath of office is to protect and defend the Constitution, which calls on the president of the United States. If you ever read it, I don't I don't know if Donald Trump has ever read this article Two, go check it out, Mr. President. It calls on him to take care. The laws are faithfully executed. So for a president of the United States to take their oath of office to defend the Constitution and then blatantly violate that Constitution, to declare that a law that still exists and still helps provide health care to some 30 million uh, Americans who don't who didn't have it before and offers to help to pay for it for millions that could not afford it previously and helps to provide much better health care insurance to hundreds of uh, hundreds of millions of Americans who now have far better coverage. Thanks to the Affordable Care Act, no matter whether you like it or not, these are just facts. Yes, I prefer a single-payer system. Yes, other uh, Republicans would like to do away with it entirely. But the fact is, hundreds of millions of Americans now have better coverage thanks to the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. For a president to tell the American public that the law does not exist anymore ought to be, I would argue, is an impeachable offense. At least in a normal world, with a normal president. At least it would be if we had a, a democratic opposition party which actually took their own constitutional duties as seriously as they should. But we have uh, this president and these Democrats, and uh, with this president we have all the abnormalities that come with it, including Republicans in the House and Senate who look the other way, and Democrats who are too cowardly or too politically ambitious, I don't know, take your pick, to call this sort of miscarriage of the presidency itself out for what it is. It is nothing less than undermining of the checks and balances and oversight duties of both the executive and legislative branches of the U.S. government. The Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, is still very much the law of the land. Its open enrollment period begins 
uh, in about, what, two weeks? Uh, yeah, less than two weeks or so. On November 1, you need to remember, November 1 at healthcare.gov, where you can sign up for insurance. And if you qualify, you can still receive subsidies to help pay for it in all 50 states and in the District of Columbia and even in Puerto Rico, by the way, if power and the Internet is restored by then, by November 1. That's the open enrollment period. It begins in just days and has been wildly shortened by the Trump administration this year, cut in half. So you must sign up and change your plan, if you like, et cetera, by December 15. Is that what it is? Uh, I think that's what it is, yes. And, and of course, you'll have to dodge the administration's planned shutdown hours on Sunday nights. But the Affordable Care Act is very much still the law of the land. Obamacare is still the law of the land, despite the president's incredible remarks telling people that it does not exist anymore. Imagine if the president had said, you know, offhandedly to uh, some of the media that the laws against murder no longer exist. There are no laws against murder in this country anymore. They're gone. Don't even think about them. And then people started killing people because, you know, they believed the president that there were no laws against murder. Or if he said that the 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 tax laws, they no longer exist. There are no longer you no longer have to pay taxes. You're no longer required. Imagine if he said that and if people actually stopped doing so, if they stopped paying their taxes uh, and the government lost billions and billions of dollars, would that be an, an, an impeachable offense? So why is it not an impeachable offense when Donald Trump tells Americans that the federal health care law that provides life saving health care? to millions of Americans no longer exists. Why is that not an impeachable offense? That is the federal law. Trump's oath of office was to faithfully protect and defend the U.S. Constitutional. Article 2 of that Constitution requires that the president take care the laws be faithfully executed. He is not doing so. In fact, he is doing the opposite of that. He is undermining the law. He is trying to make sure that the law is not faithfully executed. And he's doing it blatantly and he's doing it violently. And even before those comments on Monday, he was already violently undermining the law of the land by the action that he's been taking to undermine Obamacare in all sorts of ways. Among his latest ways of doing so, you'll recall late last week, he announced he was no longer going to allow payments to insurance companies by the federal government to help cap the out-of-pocket expenses such as deductibles and co-pays uh, for low-income Americans, despite the fact that the Affordable Care Act promises to do that. It says that, yes, uh, the, the uh, government will pay for it, the insurance companies can only uh, must cap how much they charge certain low-income Americans, and that the government will pay those insurance companies back. That is in the law. And yet Donald Trump said he's no longer going to do that. He is not going to make the payments for the month of October. He's just going to stop. So at the time that he made that announcement last week, we explained that the law required those lower rates for those low-income Americans who signed up via the Affordable Care Act uh, via the healthcare.gov exchanges. Des, did I mention that opens uh, November 1 to uh, for the open <laughs> yes, enrollment period? November okay. 1 to December 15th. 
Uh, and so the insurance companies, they still have to follow that law. Even if uh, Donald Trump, even if the government broke its promise to reimburse them. Uh, and, and we warned when that happened last week that that would lead uh, to premiums for everybody skyrocketing. Well, guess what? Right on schedule. Insurance premiums for plans sold on Pennsylvania's Obamacare exchange will increase by an average of 30.6% for 2018. Primarily because of President Trump's decision to stop paying those key subsidies. That, according to the state's insurance department chief on Monday. If Trump had decided to continue making those cost-sharing reduction payments... Projections had shown a much more modest premium increase of just 7.5%. Acting Commissioner Jessica Altman said in a statement yesterday that it is, quote, with great regret that I must announce approved rates that are substantially higher than what companies initially requested. She said this is not the situation I'd hoped we would be in, but due to, this is her quote, but due to President Trump's refusal to make cost-sharing reduction payments for 2018 and Congress's inaction to appropriate funds, it is the reality that state regulators must face and the reason rate increases will be higher than they should be across the country, Altman said. While the increase is steep in Pennsylvania, it's only going to apply for now to the mid-level silver health plans that consumers can buy on the exchanges. But if you voted, you know, Pennsylvania which went to uh, Donald Trump for the first time in years by a tiny little margin, reportedly by a tiny little margin. Uh, we, you know, we weren't allowed to count most of the votes there to find out for sure. And even if we were allowed, uh, they use 100 percent unverifiable touchscreens across most of the state. So but let's say presuming he actually did win. Well, those voters who helped him win, those voters are going to get screwed. Those voters who didn't, uh, who voted against them, they're going to get screwed as well as the uh, average increase on these premiums is going to be 30.6 percent for 2018. Uh, the idea that they're only applying them to the silver plans right now to make them more expensive uh, so that other plans on the exchange will be cushioned from the price increase either way. Those people who receive subsidies for the health for for their health care via the exchanges, they're not going to be the ones paying the price. It will be the federal government that will have to pay the increased premiums in Pennsylvania and these other states. Since Obamacare, thankfully, caps the price that those who purchase on the exchange actually pay. They pay only a percentage of their income. So the federal government's going to pick up the tab to the tune of some $200 billion over the next 10 years, according to the CBO, uh, if these, uh, these, these particular subsidies are not, uh, are, if, if Trump prevents them from being paid. Uh, and that also means that those who don't receive those subsidies are going to pay higher premiums across the board. So congratulations. And unfortunately, this is not only Pennsylvania. As Alice Olstein reports today at Talking Points Memo, because the insurance companies are required by law to cover everyone, regardless of their health status, and uh, lower the cost of care for low-income payments, and because many had assumed the government would keep making those payments, Trump's move has now thrown the entire system into turmoil. 
uh, many uh, states had already raised their rates in anticipation that Trump would cut off these particular payments, but many others haven't. Uh, like Pennsylvania. So they had to announce 30, uh, a 30% increase. Across the, uh, across the country, the, uh, the nonpartisan CBO had predicted about a 25% increase in insurance rates over two years, solely due to the subsidy cuts. On Friday, <clears throat> Oregon's Department of Consumer and Business Services ordered health insurance companies on the state's individual market to hike their rates for 2018 by more than 7%. That after Trump's announcement. This increase will affect plans both on and off healthcare.gov and will compensate for the $49 million worth of cost sharing reduction payments that the federal government will no longer be making to Oregon insurance companies in 2018. The state said Alaska. Uh, ordered a, uh, a similar rate increase, 5 to 6%. Arkansas, where insurers submitted two sets of rates, one assuming that Trump continued those payments, one assuming the cutoff that happened last week. In Arkansas, um, the higher rate, which they're going to now use apparently, will lead to a 25% jump in costs for some non-subsidized residents. So if you don't get those subsidies in Arkansas, you're screwed. Pennsylvania, I mentioned all, already uh, uh, 30%. Florida patients will pay between 26 and 72% more next year. Who's to, who's to blame for that? Well, Donald Trump and the Republicans. They will try, of course, to blame Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act. They will lie to you. Donald Trump will tell you it no longer exists. It does. But he is lying to you. On Friday, nearly 20 state attorneys general sued the Trump administration over this uh, withdrawal of, uh, of these payments, arguing that the move violates the text of the Affordable Care Act and the Administrative Procedures Act. They want to uh, make the White House pay uh, as they're supposed to. It's October payment. They're trying to get a temporary restraining order, so we'll see. Hopefully this will change in the next couple of days. But these rates are going up, period whether they get those payments at this point or not, because they got to lock in these rates for the open enrollment period, which begins November 1, no matter how Trump lies to you about it. Um, so, uh, and the insurance companies, they're going to have to pay. If he stops uh, these payments between now and the end of the year, uh, the insurance companies are still on the hook. They still have, they're going to lose tens of millions of dollars unless they decide to sue as well, and which would add even more costs to the federal government. And remember, when I say the federal government is going to end up paying, that means you, the taxpayer, is going to pay. Uh the uh, uh, Greg Sargent at uh, Washington Post Plumline says that if you had hoped that the president's uh, President Trump's incompetence would save us from his malevolence, here's the bad news. Trump's efforts to sabotage the Affordable Care Act out of pure rage and spite are likely to have a very big impact, harming large numbers of people. He goes on to cite some of these premium raises, and uh, he notes that uh, new polling finds that uh, this new polling from uh, Get Covered America, a group formed to counter Trump's sabotage of the Affordable Care Act, uh, they, they uh, issued uh, new polling from the Heart Research Associates, finding that only 31% of customers insured through the Affordable Care Act exchanges and 12% of the uninsured even know when open enrollment starts. 
they don't even know. Because uh, in addition to all of that, Trump has stopped spending money to get the word out on the advertisements concerning the open enrollment period, which begins November 1. So most of the public has no idea. And then the president comes out and says, there's no such thing as Obamacare. It doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. That seems to me to be an impeachable offense. Uh, A Democratic House leadership aide uh, told Greg Sargent that there is clear recognition that members will need to do more than they are doing now to get out the word about this. Well, if every Democrat signed an article of impeachment on this, that might bring more attention to this. Uh, That might bring more attention to the fact that uh, open enrollment period begins on November 1 for the federal law that is still in place. Sergeant uh, writes, bottom line, the rot of bad faith and sheer malevolence at the core of Trump's claim that Obamacare is already gone needs to be fully appreciated. Trump is not only rolling back the last administration's efforts to reach the uninsured, he's also telling American people, the American people, that a government program that is up and running and designed to help people get health care coverage that that no longer exists. This even as he and Republicans have confirmed that they are incapable of producing a replacement. Trump's incompetence is a key reason why he and Republicans failed to pass an affirmative plan of their own for the many millions of people currently benefiting from the ACA. But Sergeant writes that uh, incompetence isn't preventing his malevolence from destroying what is already there for him. And I will add, uh, he needs to be held accountable for that. Democrats need to be the ones to do it, since obviously Republicans will not. But they need to do it. Uh, Either way, uh, chaos reigns. And uh, I can only uh, hope that uh, people realize that this is what comes of elections. This is what Donald Trump is doing. And I can only realize that hundreds of millions aren't harmed in the bargain and lose their health care, lose their access to the human right of health care. All right. uh, Speaking of human rights, staying alive seems like one of them. Let's take a quick break and we will uh, talk about efforts, uh, actions, real actions. While Democrats and Republicans are still bickering in D.C. about gun safety laws, real action is taking place on the ground. Uh, with community leaders, and they are seeing real results, even if those actions are largely being ignored by lawmakers from both parties. That story is next on the Bradcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you.
Yes, please. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We have been covering the obscene lack of action by Republicans in Congress on gun safety legislation for years, as they still remain in thrall of the arms industry lobbyists known as the National Rifle Association, or NRA. Year after year, mass shooting after mass shooting has not moved them to take real action at the federal level to at least try to prevent the hundreds of mass shootings that take place each year in the U.S., where some 32,000 are killed each year by guns, whether by homicide, which takes the lives of about 8,000 each year, or suicide, which results in the deaths of some 20,000 Americans each year. Just extraordinary numbers, and yet our lawmakers in Washington and in many states around the nation toss up their hands and say, hey, you know, people are going to find ways to kill people no matter what. There's nothing at all we can do about it, at least not without taking away the Second Amendment. Of course, that's a false argument forwarded by the NRA, which funds many of these legislators. They reportedly spent some $50 million, the NRA did, supporting their candidates in the 2016 election alone. $50 million. That, despite, as we recently detailed on this show, new polling out from Politico and Morning Consult, which finds overwhelming support for new gun safety legislation on everything from requiring background checks for all gun sales. 88% of Americans support that. That's uh, across all parties. To preventing the sale of firearms to those convicted of violent misdemeanors. That's 83% support that. To barring gun purchases by people on the federal no-fly list. 82% of Americans support that. To even banning all assault-style weapons and high-capacity ammunition magazines. 72% of Americans support that. Nonetheless, gun safety legislation to match the overwhelming will of the elect electorate, that would be voters from all parties, fails to move forward. An op-ed at the New York Times written in the wake of the recent massacre in Las Vegas by community leaders and organizers from around the country including Antonio Sedil, Amber Goodwin, Michael McBride, and Sarah Walker, notes that it is important to remember that this kind of headline-grabbing mass shooting constitutes only a tiny fraction of the gun murders in our country. There were over 8,000 gunshot homicides in 2014, according to the FBI's most recent calculations, and gun violence is the first and second leading cause of death for African-American and Latino males between 15 and 34. The writers observe that many have thrown up their hands in despair over these numbers. But the good news is that proven strategies to protect people from being murdered by firearms do exist. The bad news, they note, they're tragically underutilized for reasons that we suspect have to do with a dismissive national attitude toward the areas where most acts of violence are committed. In the 1990s, they write, a highly effective gun violence reduction strategy was developed in Boston by a group including law enforcement officers, researchers, and black clergy members. According to the National Institute of Justice, that program resulted in a 63% reduction in the average monthly number of youth homicide victims in that city, an accomplishment that was called at the time the Boston Miracle. 
Since then, variations of that strategy have been implemented in cities across the country. For example, according to a study by the Campbell Col- uh, Collaboration, which is a nonprofit organization that evaluates the effects of this type of intervention, Stockton, California, saw a 42% reduction in its monthly count of gun homicides in the first year of the strategy's implementation. Similarly, Oakland, California, saw just under a 30% reduction. In 2017, the city is on track to have its second lowest homicide rate in over 30 years. Nonetheless, these programs are largely ignored at the national and even state level in many cases, despite their proven success. So if Congress won't pass legislation to actually curb or track gun sales, why won't they take other measures that have proven to save lives across the country? Joining us now to discuss this is one of those New York Times op-ed writers. Pastor Michael McBride, known as Pastor Mike, is the founder and lead pastor of the Way Christian Center in West Berkeley, California. He serves as the national director for the Lifelines to Healing Live Free campaign with the PICO National Network, a campaign led by hundreds of faith congregations throughout the U.S. committed to addressing gun violence and mass incarceration of young people of color. Pastor Mike, welcome to the broadcast, sir. It's an honor to have you here. I'm so honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Uh, So uh, what are these uh, mysterious programs that you write about in the New York Times that seem to work so well in uh, urban pockets of the country yet don't receive the broad support uh, that they seemingly should, either nationally or at the state level? What what are these actual programs? Well, uh, thankfully, they're not so mysterious. They're often just underreported and Mm -hmm. underutilized, and that's why I think it's so uh, much of a blessing to be with you. Uh, We have found, after 20-something years of work that has been both evaluated and certainly experienced across the country in large cities, small cities, um, urban and rural spaces, that less than half of 1% of a city's population can drive as much as 60% of the violent uh, gun uh, crimes. Mm -hmm. And so we have been able to, uh, over the years, figure out some strategies to target those who are at the highest risk of shooting and being shot um, and help make sure that their lives are saved, uh, their lives are redirected, their behavior is transformed and changed, and most importantly, um, we have communities that are not overdetermined, that are not traumatized, that are not filled with fear because of the prevalence of gun violence. These strategies, we call them violence reduction strategies. Some call them uh, GVI, gun violence initiatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, others call them group violence reduction strategies. Uh, uh, nationally, they've kind of uh, used to have a very popular name called ceasefire. Uh, whatever you want to call them, we believe that these are the strategies that we can indeed implement and fully resource at the local level without having to change the policies or get bogged down in a Second Amendment argument. Uh, Certainly we believe if we have less guns in our communities and in our country, we would certainly have less gun deaths. Mm -hmm. But uh, until we're able to get consensus on that, we should not allow the lives 
of our communities to be lost uh, while we uh, throw up our hands and say we can't do anything. So when you talk about uh, focusing on these groups, I presume we're talking about gang violence. We always hear from Republicans uh, in particular after uh, these mass shootings that, oh, there's nothing we can do. Uh, look at the gun violence in Chicago, uh, and they have the strictest gun laws in the land. Never mind that, you know, Chicago is not an island, so people can go anywhere to buy guns, mm-hmm. uh, even if they live in Chicago. But they seem to be talking uh, about programs like yours how do your programs uh, identify and then uh, target is not a good word focus on uh, on these these people and, and how does it actually work how, how do you reach out to them yeah that's a great question so again because the the, the number of individuals are so small we usually have a wonderful tools scientific tools that range from social mapping networks uh, we're able to actually I use the research to teach us that if you have a uh, if you've been a victim of a, a a gun violent crime or a gun crime, if you have been uh, charged with a crime with guns mm-hmm. uh, in your juvenile or early adulthood, that those kinds of interactions or experiences actually put you at the highest risk of shooting or being shot. Now, in our work, we find that the distinction between a victim and a perpetrator is a false one. Mm. Most individuals who have been victimized often are forced by uh, their own fear, anger, trauma, or pain to engage in uh, gunplay as a form of self-preservation or certainly a reenactment of their own trauma. And so you find that when you actually begin to use data, when you actually begin to rely on the relationships you build into communities, that we can actually, with pretty good accuracy, start to drill down into those uh, groups and even within those groups, individuals who are at the highest risk of shooting or being shot. This is an important point because too often in the black community, in poor communities, brown communities, racial profiling is used as the primary uh, tool to try and identify these individuals, and that creates a, a collective punishment kind of environment where everyone in the community who looks like, quote-unquote, a, a criminal uh, is then treated as one. And we have found that that is not only unconstitutional, but it is certainly not effective, and this is why we are so excited and are kind of trying to elevate the success of these programs because we think we can do this without uh, harming people's uh, bodies, mind, soul, spirit, without violating their constitutional rights, and making sure we have safe communities uh, within 18 months, within 24 months, that are sustained. Is this a matter of well, what some have called community policing, intervening at the at the community level, uh, uh, reaching out, developing relationships with uh, with those who are at risk, uh, and and That's- and how is it different from, you know, we. <laughs> We often hear, uh, well, stop and frisk, uh, and I think that's sort of the, 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 the targeted uh, racial uh, tactic you're talking about mm-hmm. there on the, on the level. So how is what you're doing different from the stop and frisk uh, strategies? Well, again, the, the premise of this is to center not policing in the strategy, but those who are at the highest risk of shooting and or being shot. And so it, it may feel like a subtle distinction to the, to the uninitiated, but to we who are very much involved, when you center those who are traumatized or causing harm, then you actually approach this situation with public health tools, not law enforcement or uh, mm-hmm. uh, 
punitive tools, right? And so this is a very important approach because we know that community policing uh, greatly uh, relies on the ability of police to deliver constitutional policing to the communities uh, of color and the communities that are suffering from high incidence of lethal violence. Mm -hmm. And we all know that in this environment, constitutional policing is not a given in many of our communities. And so if we center policing as the sole arbiter of this strategy, then it will continuously fail. Where there is unconstitutional policing, we have found it breeds lawlessness. So actually, police can be uh, a hindrance to implementing this strategy without embracing uh, the need for police reform and police legitimacy. We're finding that even right now, most recently, the FBI released this report that is, is claiming that uh, those associated with uh, uh, standing up against uh, racial profiling, police violence, uh, white supremacy, uh, those that uh, affiliate with, with Black Lives Matter may be deemed a black uh, identity extremist. Mm. Those kinds mm -hmm. of designations that the FBI and, and some police uh, entities are embracing actually make police not able to be the, at the center of these strategies. And this is why we believe that community policing and these other uh, uh, tools have to be used at the service of those who are directly impacted, those who are directly in the line of being shot or being uh, a perpetrator. And it is there that we have found consistently in cities across the country when this is done, uh, decreases in violence in the first 18 to 24 months that can be as uh, low as 30 percent and as high as 60 percent. Those numbers are, are unprecedented. If you had a police department that had a 4 to 5 percent reduction per year a police chief would get a raise, and they would get promoted to right. a bigger department. Yep. The idea that we're actually able to see these kinds of levels of reduction uh, without more arrests, without more incarceration, uh, uh, we're able to see the drop in police shootings, and we're able to see a drop in uh, police misconduct charges, uh, complaints. Uh, we think that this is uh, the vanguard of how we must begin to re-fashion uh, uh, the conversation about public safety around lethal gun violence in our communities, and we think it can help accelerate uh, the passage of more common-sense laws uh, with, with relationship to guns because it will help people address their irrational fear that uh, the urban neighborhoods are going to come out here and try to rob my home or hurt my family. We think we don't need to have that fear of uh, black and brown bodies in order to uh, make sure we can have peaceful communities. So as I understand it, this is really a, a partnership between the police, the grassroots organizations, social workers, religious groups, and so forth in, in these various uh, neighborhoods around the country where the program has been put into place. It is working. What explains, then, the lack of implementation in other states and other cities and, frankly, even at the federal level? Is this uh, simply a racial issue or is this uh, the or, or, or are these kind of programs just, you know, not as as, as sexy as banning all the assault weapons or, uh, you know, whatever it is, whatever the efforts are that uh, the Democrats are pushing for? Why don't we hear more Democrats pushing for these at the very least? I think it's a I think it's a mixture of all of those, and you know we could spend an hour talking about that. I, I'll just quickly say, many Democrats honestly don't know about these strategies with enough um, with enough uh, intricacy mm -hmm. and 
and and nuancing, I believe, to be able to champion them. I don't think they fit in a sound bite. And so I think for many progressive lawmakers, this is just uh, below their radar. I also think that um, tough on crime and and growing police departments and building more prisons has Mm -hmm. been a bipartisan uh, slam dunk for those Mm -hmm. who want to be elected or for those who want to seem or believe they're being responsive to communities who are calling for the end to gun violence in our neighborhoods. And so I think it is a certain laziness, I believe, mm-hmm. on the part of elected officials to actually learn these strategies and then uh, pass policies, budgets, and, and, uh, and structures that actually make sure public health approaches to urban gun violence are actually much more uh, uh, common knowledge than just the, the policy apparatus. And then I think the third thing, unfortunately, these, these programs are just very much underfunded. Um, many of the practitioners of these strategies are people of color. Uh, we do not have a, a large wealth network. Mm. So much of our tax base uh, in our in our cities, we know, are going to police, are going to jails or prisons, are going to fire departments. I'm here in California and, 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 and really feeling the, 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 the tragedy of these fires mm-hmm. happening right now. So so these are things that, that many of our tax base dollars go to. And so in order for these strategies up until now to be implemented, we've had to depend on philanthropy or corporate uh, of philanthropy. Google just gave us a wonderful infusion of resources most recently to help us try to scale this up. We've had uh, the California Endowment and many other public health foundations that have helped to seed this effort. And so we know philanthropy cannot replace or compensate uh, uh, the the kind of resources and investment of our local municipal tax base. And so I think all of those things make uh, a, a big uh, explanation as to why this is happening. And, of course, I, I would be remiss to, to just plainly say that mm-hmm. um, we have not demonstrated that black bodies and brown bodies are worthy of an investment from the larger uh, municipal government uh, that does not uh, uh, center policing and incarceration. And so we have to, I think, win over many more hearts and minds that dark-skinned bodies are worthy of an investment on a prevention and intervention level, that dark-skinned bodies uh, are capable of, of stepping away from these harmful tra- uh, historical trauma manifestations without policing and without incarceration. We have to make that public argument, and it's a moral argument, it's an argument around imagination, it's an argument around our moral center, and I think that is part of why the work resonates so much with faith leaders, um, because we do believe in redemption and second chances. We don't think people should be defined by the worst thing they've done in their life, and so we have to now make that argument more publicly in a public policy space, and that is why we're so excited to keep championing these conversations and these strategies, and hopefully we'll reach a tipping point where every community across the country invest on the prevention and intervention side and not just on the law enforcement side. I've uh, got just a few more minutes here with Pastor Michael McBride of LiveFree.org. Pastor Mike, if you can't convince some people that black lives matter, as it were, you write in in your New York Times op-ed that police departments in urban areas often account for large percentages of city budgets, but end up spending more time and resources trying to solve murders than working to prevent them. You go on to cite the Rand Corporation, which estimates that a single murder 
cost the community over $8 million in court, police, hospital, incarceration, and other expenditures, and that it would be cheaper to actually, uh, you know, implement these programs to prevent these murders in the first place. Just, you know, on the fiscal argument for those people who, who, who you know, aren't moved by, you know, darker skinned people, uh, uh, you know, being murdered at alarming rates. Uh, the, it sounds like cash strapped cities would actually save money from these programs. Uh, has that been an angle that has uh, worked to see them implemented around the country? Just the, the financial issue. Yeah. Yeah, the financial. Well, again, this is not well known to folks, and this is why this has been a huge part of how we try to argue um, that if you don't, if it doesn't hit you on a kind of human level, maybe you'll appreciate it on a pocketbook level. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, yeah, and so we, we do believe that it is much more of a fiscally responsible uh, strategy. Um, and so we call it the cost for peace versus the cost for death. Anecdotally, we have uh, figured out that about twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars of investment on the front or intervention level, with case management, mentorship, a few little uh, uh, resources around housing and and food, if mm -hmm. you can imagine that, uh, that alone would allow uh, us to be able to uh, offset the the back end costs, which is incarceration, uh, loss of revenue from. Uh, being being uh, 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 dead, unfortunately, it, 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 uh, the cost for arrest, mm -hmm. et cetera. We say $25,000 on the front end, the cost for peace, versus uh, 2 to 4 to $5 million on the back end, the cost for death. And so if you were to scale that up, say, in the city of Oakland, we figured out that the, the 40 or so individuals in Oakland who would need that level of investment would come out to about $12 million. But the cost, to, uh, to only respond to their behavior after the fact actually totals around $40 million. And so we are, we are hoping that across the country we can continue to make these arguments and collectively they can add up that the cost for peace saves lives, it saves dollars, it heals communities, it keeps families together, it repairs the broken relationships between the state, between law enforcement and communities versus the cost for death which grows our prison population, which makes our police officers less safe, which breaks up our families, which actually creates more fear, which then uh, uh, drives the amounts of guns being, being marketed by the uh, corrupt NRA executives and gun manufacturers. We think that cost for peace versus cost of death is a wonderful framework for us to continue to use. And again, we see success. And with the success, we hope these arguments will begin to take root and in, say, the 25 most violent cities across the country, we're working currently in about 10 of them. We hope we can, you know, scale up and make sure that by 2025, all of our cities have these strategies and we're saving as many lives as possible and keeping our families and our community safe. It does sound like a matter of education, getting out the word. Uh, Michael McBride, you uh, conclude your uh, New York Times op-ed uh, by writing, it would be one thing if the solution to gun violence in our country were as elusive as the cure for cancer, but that's not the case. The effective solutions exist and are simply not being funded or supported. While the left and right continue to argue about gun control and gun rights, it would be refreshing to see some bipartisan support at the federal, state, and local level for programs that can get results right now, because in cities across our country, gun murders, every bit as tragic as the ones that took place in Las Vegas, 
are happening every day. Uh, indeed, they are, Pastor Mike, and uh, you're uh, a, a great voice for this. I really appreciate you coming and, and uh, sharing the work that you guys are doing at livefreeusa.org. People can also get more information uh, on on uh, on your uh, specific group at piconetwork.org. And uh, do I have this right on the Twitter, uh, Pastor Mike? You are Pastor M-Y-K-M-A-C, Mike Mack. Yes, sir. Mike Mack. That's, that was my name when I was growing up in the hood. It just stuck. So, yeah, that's uh, that, that. Pastor Mike Mack. You can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Live Free US on Twitter, livefreeusa.org. All those places will get you connected. We'd love to build with you in your city. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Let's make some peace, family. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Great having you here. Hope you'll join us again in, in the future. Good luck with the programs, and thank you for your for your service and your fight here. It is greatly appreciated. Pastor Michael McBride. Yes, thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Desi Doyen and the Green News Report are on deck. A very busy Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence, because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Desi Doyen? Yes? I don't know how you got this much news into one single report. We try. Well, you tried. You succeeded. Let's get to it. Our latest green news report. You can really feel the sheer power of a failure. Record-breaking hurricane batters Ireland. Yes, Ireland. A turning point as firefighters make significant progress. Gaining ground against deadliest wildfires in California history. Desperate Puerto Ricans obtaining water from toxic Superfund sites. Plus... Today, tragedy knows no boundaries. Search for a missing worker suspended after an oil rig explodes in Louisiana. All of those stories and more straight ahead from bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. And I left Florida and I left Louisiana and I went to Puerto Rico and I met with the president of the Virgin Islands. Alexa, who is the president of the Virgin Islands? The U.S. Virgin Islands president is Donald Trump. <sighs> this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, Donald Trump held a 40-minute press conference in the Rose Garden on Monday. And with all of the assembled media there and all of the hurricanes we've had in the recent weeks and all of the fires, not one of those reporters could manage to ask Donald Trump about climate change and pulling out of the Paris Agreement. As much as Donald Trump seems to be failing, 
Our national media continues to be failing all of us. Yes, they are. But we won't. Fueled by an unusually warm Atlantic Ocean, Hurricane Ophelia reached Category 3 status on Saturday, breaking the record for the farthest east a major Atlantic hurricane has ever existed. Another record storm in a record Atlantic storm season. Ophelia's remnants smashed into Ireland on Monday. Ireland. As of airtime, killing at least three people, according to Ireland's National Police. A recent study predicted that the warming Atlantic Ocean is putting Europe at risk for even more hurricanes. In Northern California, state fire officials say more than 11,000 firefighters from across the U.S., Canada, and Australia are gaining ground against catastrophic heat and wind-driven wildfires in the state's wine country. It's been the deadliest week of wildfires in California state history. As of airtime, the fires have killed at least 41 people. Nearly 100 people are still listed as missing. More than five 5,700 buildings destroyed. Damages in Sonoma County alone are estimated to cost more than $3 billion. Smoke from the fires has generated the worst air quality in the Bay Area's history. It's estimated the fires have already released air pollution equivalent to that released by all of the state's cars in an entire year. Mm. Fighting the record western wildfire season of 2017 has cost the federal government nearly $3 billion and has already surpassed the previous record set for firefighting in 2015. And this year's fire season is not over yet. In Portugal and Spain, officials over the weekend reported at least 30 four people died in hundreds of wildfires that were whipped up by wind gusts from passing Hurricane Ophelia. And in Brazil, wildfires in the Amazon rainforest are nearing a new annual record as Brazil's dry seasons become even drier. Climate scientists warn that global warming is accelerating the speed of wildfires in California and elsewhere. According to UCLA climate scientist Daniel Swain in an interview with Climate Progress, quote, increasing temperature plays a significant role in making these fires more explosive and covering ground more quickly. And yet, with all of that, not one single question about climate to the President of the United States in a 40-minute press conference. In Puerto Rico, nearly a month after Hurricane Maria, 30% of Puerto Rico still lacks potable drinking water. The Washington Post reports that desperate residents have been forced to obtain drinking water from wells at toxic Superfund sites. Food shortages have been reported. But at the White House on Monday, President Trump again suggested that residents are to blame for that as well. We have have massive amounts of food, but they have to distribute the food and they have to do this. They have to distribute the food to the people of the island. So what we've done is we now actually have military distributing food, something that really they shouldn't have to be doing. So once again, everyone else but Donald Trump is to blame. Got it. In Louisiana, unfortunately, Jefferson Parish officials have suspended the search for a missing rig worker after an explosion and fire that engulfed an oil and natural gas storage platform located in Lake Pontchartrain on Sunday. In addition to the missing worker, seven others were injured, three critically. The cause is under investigation, and the state believes no oil was released. But in a separate incident, an oil pipeline rupture off the coast of Louisiana on Friday spilled an estimated 350,000 gallons of crude oil. Mm. Finally, some good news. Took you long enough. The Chinese government announced it has canceled 150 proposed new coal plants equal to the combined generating capacity of both Germany and Japan. And great news for breathers in Texas. Electric utility Luminant has announced it is closing three unprofitable coal plants in the state earlier than planned because of cheap natural gas and the glut of renewable energy. Wow, Donald Trump's Barack Obama's war on coal is really hurting these people. For much more on all of those 
stories. Yeah, you worked that out. Please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Trying to. Yes, indeed. At least for the people in Texas, they'll be able to breathe a little bit easier soon. Thank you very much for that report, Des. Before we get out here, uh, AP is reporting a key Republican senator says on Tuesday that he has reached a deal, quote, in principle with his Democratic counterpart on resuming federal payments to health insurers that President Donald Trump has blocked. As we were discussing at the top of the show, which I believe is all of his what he's done on uh, to undermine Obamacare is an impeachable offense. But and anyway, it's still impeachable. I think it is. Uh, the agreement would involve a two year extension of federal payments to insurers that Trump had halted last week, according to Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. Uh, Alexander and Senator Patty Murphy, Democrat from Washington, have been working for weeks on health care legislation. Uh, separate from these repeated and unsuccessful efforts by the Republicans to dismantle the Affordable Care Act. Emerging from a closed-door GOP lunch on Tuesday, Alexander said, Senator Murray and I have an agreement and added that that, uh, Trump has encouraged them and that the president, quote, likes the idea. While the, agree- while the agreement is a breakthrough, they still need to secure the support of fellow Republicans and Democrats. The president said it is a short-term solution, so we don't have this very dangerous little period. This very dangerous little period that he's talking about is the one that he created. By lying about the law, too. By lying about the law, but by cutting off these payments. he This could have been avoided. He created this, and now he's in favor of this short-term solution, so we don't have this dangerous period that I created for the American people that he could have avoided by simply continuing the payments uh, that the government has made, the federal government, since the law was passed, what, seven years ago at this point. So... Create a disaster, pretend there's a solution, and we will see if this solution even uh, comes to pass, even if it even works, if the Republicans are capable of getting this through both houses of Congress. I don't know. Um, Did I mention I think it's an impeachable offense, what he did? Yes. And uh, that open enrollment opens uh, November 1 at healthcare.gov. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Pastor Michael McBride of LiveFreeUSA.org, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com or your favorite podcast site. Please leave a good comment for us wherever you get it. Uh, You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. Thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to bring uh, this show to you every day. All right. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Yeah.